Equal access to justice is a core American value. In each episode of Talk Justice, an LSC podcast, we'll explore ways to expand access to justice and illustrate why it is important to the legal community, business, government, and the general public. Talk Justice is sponsored by the Leaders' Council of the Legal Services Corporation. Hello, and welcome to Talk Justice. This is Kat Moon, your host for this episode. As the Director of Innovation Design at Vanderbilt Law School, it is part of my mission to engage in conversations with access to justice leaders across the U.S. and to showcase the amazing work being done by folks who are truly leading the way to innovate and increase access by combining the power of technology and the principles of human-centered design. Today, I'm joined by Quentin Stainhouse, practitioner in residence and adjunct professor at Suffolk Law School's Legal Innovation and Technology Lab. Before joining Suffolk Law in 2020, Quentin was a senior housing attorney, systems administrator, and developer at Greater Boston Legal Services. And he brings this experience with technology, as well as his legal experience, to the project that is the topic of our conversation today, the Document Assembly Line Project. In a nutshell, the Document Assembly Line Project has produced a set of open source tools and processes to help legal aid and other organizations quickly and effectively create mobile-friendly online court forms and pro se materials. The processes and tools developed through the project are being used by jurisdictions around the country to make it easier for pro se litigants to access, understand, and complete court forms automatically. Because the project has been designed specifically to be replicated in any community and to scale access to court forms rapidly, it is a tremendous example of the kind of work we seek to share and elevate on Talk Justice. Quentin and his colleagues at Suffolk Law have created a wealth of resources that anyone can use to replicate this work and automate the creation of documents to help pro se litigants navigate the court experience in easier ways with far less friction. For example, the project led to the creation of courtformsonline.org, a place where pro se litigants in Massachusetts can go to get information, complete, and file court forms online in dozens of matter types. In our conversation, Quentin shares some context for how the Document Assembly Line project came to be, and most importantly, how anyone can leverage the tools they've created to do the same thing in other jurisdictions. Hello, Quentin, and welcome to Talk Justice. It is so good to have you here today. Thank you so much for joining us. And as I was preparing for our conversation, I realized that there are so many things I would love to talk with you about, and we do have a mission for today. So I want to keep us slightly focused. Particularly, I am enthralled by and really curious to learn more about your document assembly line project. So that is the primary topic for today. And I would love just to dig in because we have not enough time to do it justice, but we will kick off first. Can you share with us some context for how this project got started? Because I think that is really critical to understanding really how powerful it is. How did you get started with the project? So the beginning of the pandemic was also when I started at Suffolk Law School. So I I came from Greater Boston Legal Services, where I had started as uh, a tenant attorney doing some technology projects as well. And, you know, then realized I could do a lot more and scale my work more by using tools like document automation to let more people access 
the kind of help that we were giving with in-person clinics remotely on smartphones on a website. And that really seemed like the perfect fit for the needs that we had right at the beginning of the pandemic. So the, the first day that I came to Suffolk was supposed to be an in-person day. But just that week before, they said, actually, no one's coming on campus. The campus is shut down totally. And of course, it wasn't just Suffolk's campus that was was closing for in-person access back in 2020. It was courts. It was legal aid offices. All of the places where people would go to get in-person help with their basic civil legal needs, there really wasn't a way for them to get that through in-person assistance anymore. Our dean put out a call to our legal innovation and technology lab at Suffolk and said, what are some things that you all think that we could do to help the Supreme Judicial Court, the chief justice of our highest court in Massachusetts, had put out a call to the full Massachusetts bar and saying, we need to step up to this moment. What are some ways that we can help give people access to legal help when they're not able to get it? The traditional ways, you know, sitting down across the table from an attorney. And we thought that the work that I did at Greater Boston Legal Services and with the power of the lab, that we could start to chip away at that problem and make a difference. The real challenge that we realized right away was that the traditional way of building these kind of self-help tools, DIY tools that let people solve legal problems, was just really slow. Uh, I spent a year working on a tenant rights tool at Greater Boston Legal Services with you know, three or four or five different people working on different parts of it in significant ways. That's pretty typical for the timeline for a lot of projects that are funded by the Legal Services Corporation as well. And tools that legal aid programs build, like a year is like a pretty good timeline to build a really sophisticated app. But we just didn't really have that time. We kind of knew that the emergency, the COVID emergency was not going to be just a few weeks. So there was going to be time for people to benefit from our work. But we also really didn't expect it to be that helpful to build things that were going to be ready in a year and to just build, you know, one that helped solve one or two or three legal problems over the course of a year. We needed some way to scale up the work pretty fast. And that's where we came up with the idea of the document assembly line. So it's just so interesting to me how the the context, the COVID pandemic, I think this is another example of how when um, circumstances demand it, we can really figure out different ways of doing things, right? And so adjusting that timeline so that you could ship more quickly leads us to, so that's the context and very helpful because I'm constantly looking for kind of the, the bright silver linings of, you know, this experience, the COVID experience we've been going through. And I, I think this project is an excellent example. So the context now, tell us what the document assembly line project is. So the word assembly line is kind of the key there. So what we realized is we need to find a way to make the work that we've been doing to build these self-help tools more repeatable, more scalable, and more easily acted on by people with a small amount of training. And actually, during the pandemic, suddenly we had access to lots and lots of those people. Basically, we used our social media contacts. We had a few stories that were published in places like the Boston Globe. Uh, the ABA Journal, I think, had a, a little piece about it. It reached a lot of law school 
publications. So we, we had a lot of students who were interested in volunteering, technologists from all over the world who were interested in volunteering. Ultimately, we had more than 200 folks who participated in some way on the document assembly line. And that represented five continents, 11 time zones, wow. and a very, very broad range of time commitment for each of those people. Some people showed up and they might have had like a couple hours to go on the project. Some people volunteered full-time for months. Wow. Um, we had a project manager in South Africa. I liked, I love the story because it, it was <laughs> such a huge piece of our project. She helped make the, the whole project function for six or seven months from Cape Town, South Africa. No prior connection to Massachusetts, but helping us organize the work of all of these volunteers and also working on some of the, the tools that we built herself. So what we focused on was, first we started with process. We were like, okay, what are the different steps for building this? What are some parts and ways that someone can contribute with just like an hour or so of training? or less in some cases. And so we started to just like map out the process and break it down into smaller pieces that were more easily replicated and distributed among a large group of people. So one of the, the folks that really helped us early on with this process was John Grant, who's based in Oregon. He has a website called The Agile Attorney. And he helped us like build some really effective workflows on Trello and helped us think through the process of assigning work and tracking it and making sure that it you know, when someone had a few hours to contribute, that we could really take advantage of that work and have it move the project forward in a real way. Um, so that was really key. Like a lot of it started with breaking the work down into smaller pieces. It wasn't really technology driven, other than we used some things like Kanban boards, which yeah. really you could just replicate on a whiteboard with Post-its, but we used Trello mostly to make it easy for people to jump on that at any time of day or night from different parts of the world. The other thing that we did is as we, we started breaking those tasks down into smaller pieces, we thought a lot about how to automate them as much as we could. Mm -hmm. So one of the first things we built, we, we settled on this platform DocAssemble, which is growing in popularity. It's an open source framework that mostly uses Python. It's a little bit more intimidating for people to jump into than some of the drag and drop form building tools that are out there. But one of the real strengths that it has and why we chose it is because it was very easily automatable. Mm -hmm. You know, we're, we're working with code, text files, ultimately, that yeah. then get turned into a really easy to use and dynamic website, but they start as text. And computer programs are really good at generating text and working with text and transforming it. So we were able to build a tool that would take a form a PDF form at the beginning, but we also were able ultimately to work with Word documents. And with a little bit of work in advance, this was one of the things someone could volunteer and just do for a couple hours. They could go through a list of keywords, label the PDF in a special way, and then that could turn into a draft of this interactive interview with just a very simple wizard-driven process. So that was a huge time saver from building these tools by hand to suddenly you could click a button and with a little bit of advanced prep, you could build an interview in an hour or two. Wouldn't be the one that you wanted forever, but it was something we could get in the hands of folks much more quickly hmm. than building it the old-fashioned bespoke way. We found lots of those little levers, like places where we could take work that was being done manually and automate it. 
I, I have this. If anyone's ever seen the the TV show Pimp My Ride, that was a, <laughs> yes. a popular meme for a while. <laughs> you know, the uh, mm-hmm. the host of that show exhibit has this thing where he says, "Hey, yo, dog, you you like document automation? So I document automated your document automation. That's <laughs> <laughs> that's the phrase that I landed on to describe what we were doing." Someone who's who's seen the show more. Actually, I think I just know the meme. I don't know that I've actually seen an episode. <laughs> Probably can do it more justice than <laughs> I just did then. I have a teenage son, so such things get watched in my house. But no, I, I think that's a, a great meme for the purpose. And so as you're describing it, I, I hear very clearly it started with people. You had people ready, willing, and able and wanting to volunteer and contribute in small or large increments of time, and then you focused on process, right? Figuring out exactly how you were going to execute this project, and then came the technology. So I just, I like to always emphasize how people process technology is often, you know, a good order to follow, and this is being borne out in what you're describing. And um, absolutely, I was in a few places online and saw bits and pieces of the project as you guys were executing. So regrettably, I wasn't personally involved, but I know a lot of folks who were, including John Grant. And what you're describing is also an excellent example of when you bring a group of people together who contribute different skill sets, right? That's another, I think, opportunity to point that out, that you had some folks who were experts in project management and agile project execution. And I'm certain you had people who brought some different cognitive and professional skills to the work. So you get things launched, you are, you're going virtually. Did you use Slack primarily for kind of the communication platform or did everything get moved to Trello? I'm just curious, like what the kind of what the tech pieces that supported the work were. Sure. Yeah. So we, we definitely had like a alphabet soup of mm-hmm. different technologies. We tried different things. We, we saw what worked and some things that we stuck with. Slack was one of our main communication tools. We used the Trello board for like asynchronous tracking of work, but there were a lot of discussions that happened in real time on Slack. We also had these daily stand-up meetings, but we knew with the time zone differences, we really couldn't have everybody attend those. So we recorded yeah. those. We used Zoom for those conferences and we shared them on YouTube so people could catch up on what happened in those discussions. We've since moved our communications platform to Teams, mm. but we're st- we haven't replaced, you know, we're really just using it as a Slack replacement. We're not using the video chat feature from Teams and we're also not using its video sharing and file sharing capabilities. We, for some of those things, we're using Google Docs. So we kind of were a little bit spoiled by being able to work with a group of people that tended to be really tech forward and willing to have that mix of technologies so that it wasn't too much of a burden. But I wouldn't necessarily recommend working with five different platforms that each have overlapping <laughs> features. Yeah. So you have to pick and choose what which you're using for what. Well, and one of the reasons I pointed out is all of the platforms in the tech stack you just mentioned have a free or very low cost option. And so yes. I think this is just an example of how you can put together, and I guess that might sound overwhelming to some, but that actually doesn't sound like too many places you have to manage things to me. 
but again, low cost or no cost way to connect people around the world to move the project forward. And speaking of moving it forward, I would love to hear from you how the project really has manifested for the various stakeholders. So, I mean, it's delivering value, serving an incredibly important purpose. So what does that look like? Yeah, absolutely. So I kind of talked about like what our goals were and what we were trying to do. But what ultimately we did is we got a core number of we thought were some of these emergency processes. I think we said Mm -hmm. identified about 30 of them that were still going on during time the court was kind of closed to routine business. We focused a lot of our work on the domestic violence tool. That was one that involves Mm -hmm. about seven different forms, I believe. That was one of the things we used a lot of volunteer effort to get up and running quickly. And now we are, we have about 30 of those processes or so automated in Massachusetts, a a bit more that are at various stages of work. Like we've, as we've kind of lost that large number of volunteers, but we've also shifted our work outwards to look at the rest of the country and helping people Mm -hmm. replicate. In terms of the numbers, I can share those too. So in addition to those like 30 or so different individual tools, some of which automate many forms We've had about 750,000 views to our the website and the tools that are on the website, which is, they're hosted at courtformsonline.org. And that's resulted in 31,000 downloads, which wow. that means someone started a process. Some of those might take up to an hour to finish. They got through whatever triage there was there because we're trying to screen people out who don't fit the tool. And they, they got all the way through to the to the end of that process. So backing up just a little bit in terms of the process, can you tell us a little bit about the stakeholders who were and are involved in deciding here are the forms that we want to automate and kind of impacted how the final product, the website, came into being? Absolutely. So... Our first partner was really the Massachusetts Trial Court, which was kind of exciting. It's mm-hmm. not necessarily the most forward-looking court in a lot of ways. They're they're cautious about adopting new technologies. And there were a lot of things that we had, you know, David Calarusso, who's the director of the lab that I'm working in at Suffolk, and myself, you know, in my role at Greater Boston Legal Services before I joined the lab, we'd all been kind of advocating around the edges for things like opening up e-filing to these automated tools. And it wasn't really until the pandemic when the court was like, yes, let's figure out a process for that so people can get to the end of something like a fee waiver petition or the domestic violence restraining order petition. And they don't have to figure out a really complicated, cumbersome e-filing process to do it. They can just deliver it directly to the court at the end of the interview. So they, they agreed to do that for some of our tools. That was kind of time limited to the peak of the pandemic for the trial court. But after kind of trying this out and seeing and learning lots of good lessons about like form approval processes, we ended up picking up the appeals court as a partner. The Massachusetts appeals court deals a lot with emergency housing cases. And um, when it came to the appeals court, that's still an ongoing relationship in terms of actually delivering these forms to the court 
directly. So we use weekly meetings to move individual forms and processes forward to check on the status of things like moving away from email filing, which we've been using for most of the last three years, to now a true integration with the e-filing system that Tyler Technologies created and that Massachusetts uses. So we're going to become the first third-party EFSP in Massachusetts that we're on track to do. That's phenomenal. Yeah, we're, we're at the last stages of that right now. We've gotten through the approvals and the testing, and we're just waiting through the administrative sign-off and making sure we've checked all the boxes as far as the corp's concerned. So I'm curious, once that happens, does that potentially impact more than the work you're doing in Massachusetts? Could that benefit inure to other jurisdictions? It can. And I, okay. I know I've talked mostly about Massachusetts, mm-hmm. but that e-filing project actually started in Illinois and Louisiana. So okay. in Illinois, we have live forms that are e-filable in Illinois that people are using right now with Tyler Technologies. In Louisiana, we we built a project for one specific court that's actually, it's not live right now. But one of the kind of cool spillover effects of that process, which started with e-filing as the focus, is that now we're starting to build, we're starting to help through that process of choosing a form, saying this is the one we want to e-file. We're starting to help actually get a bigger library of standardized forms in Louisiana, which is really neat because they haven't had a lot of statewide yeah. forms. That's been partly driven by this process of, of trying the e-filing project. So a primary objective of this conversation is to help folks who are in other places and might be interested in doing this work in bringing the document assembly line project to their own jurisdiction. I think it would be very helpful to understand what's happening across the country in other jurisdictions and specifically how other folks can get involved, can really benefit from all the groundwork that you all have laid. I mean, you have tremendous resources. We must mention those before <laughs> before our conversation ends. But yeah, I think it would be really helpful to understand kind of what's bubbling up around the country and how folks can do something similar. So we started with this idea of like scaling our work, you know, with lots and lots of volunteers in one jurisdiction. But that was really tied to some very specific things about the yeah. pandemic when people were, you know, had new patterns of remote work. They weren't as busy. Some people lost their their jobs. They were looking for a way to find meaning. So we just, we don't have 200 volunteers, as you might imagine, <laughs> working with us any, every day. But there is this really rich tradition, which the Legal Services Corporation has fostered in several states where they've been working forever steadily with full-time employees to automate forms and maintain them and and to to be able to serve pro se litigants in their jurisdiction. So that's where we've turned the focus of our work. Um, I mentioned the project in Illinois and Louisiana. Those were some of our earliest partners who took advantage of the assembly line tools that we built and turned them, for the most part, they're individual solo form builders who still can benefit from standardization of their work. And now we actually are working with about eight different states. So... The appeals court I mentioned, Massachusetts, Louisiana, Illinois. We have folks in Maine, Texas, Michigan, Minnesota, Vermont. There's other folks that I'm I'm leaving off of the list here (laughs) who are all experimenting with using kind of the standardized pieces of what we built. So things like 
if you have a, a space for someone's name, we refer to that one way. And we have built a standardized question for it. And because DocAssemble is really friendly to automation and also very flexible in terms of how you layer that automation in, you know, you can customize it, but you only have to write a question that asks for someone's name once. And if that format works for you, then you don't have to change it or update it or write any code to make use of it in the next form you're doing that has the same place for a person's name. We're letting people building things, let people change and customize the style of their interview, things like the logos and colors just one time and reuse those. And we do that. We help build that and help choose what features to build through weekly meetings. So we have folks who join us every week to talk through the problems and challenges that they're running Mm -hmm. into to share ideas and needs that we can help build for them and to do some peer mentoring too. So uh, a lot of these folks are new to learning DocAssemble, which is our primary tool. And it's a really great resource for them to to share their work and have it replicate and spread across the country that way and avoid a lot of unnecessary repeat work. Exactly. How can we learn from each other so that we all, we're not having to reinvent the wheel, as they say. Someone else has probably done something similar, if not the same thing, and we can learn from it. I think what you're describing actually is this concept of community of practice. And there was conversation about that at ITC in January in Phoenix about creating ways for people to connect in people who are doing similar kinds of work and focused on similar challenges. How can we connect in and have these conversations so that we're learning from each other? Um, We can help each other problem solve and we can also learn and avoid others (laughs) errors and perhaps shorten that learning curve. So I think that's what you're describing, which is amazing. So that is one resource you offer. Can you share a little bit for our listeners just give us an idea of the kinds of resources that you all have made available. So I, I think the first place to start would probably be going to our website, courtformsonline.org. And I think we've made it easy, added some links there to get to our kind of about page. And it takes you to kind of our resources for automators. And there are a couple of different kinds of resources there. There We've started with the basics. So things like how to write good questions. We kind of gathered some of the best evidence and information and thought through our own style guide as we were trying to communicate one way of doing this. Well, at least one best way of doing this across lots of volunteers. We came up with rules, some of which came from resources like the UK's really good content on writing questions for their National Health Services site some of which we had from our own practice and experiences. One of our main partners was Mass Legal Help, which is the statewide legal help website in Massachusetts. And the uh, staff there, uh, Caroline Robinson, who is the director of the Websites Project, had a really good wealth of experience in plain language writing. So that's one of the pieces. It's really applicable no matter what platform you use, like how to group questions, how to write them well, how to be respectful of the litigant on the other side. Then we've built like actually a question library where we've said, here's how we think this kind of question for like a name and address, gender, language, how we think those should be written down to coding style guides that are more specific to DocAssemble, 
And from there, you can find a, kind of see like very detailed how-tos and references about the tools that we've built. So we've built this big layer on top of DocAssemble that makes it easier, faster, more repeatable, and scalable to build high-quality user-focused interviews. And our website tells you really in clear detail, step-by-step, how to do it. Sometimes they're videos, sometimes there's uh, sample code. It was all kind of our focus from the beginning was getting lots of people to do the work. So we have lots of stuff written down, and almost everything that comes up on our meetings with our state partners on a weekly basis, you know, questions. They can get asked as many times as, as they need to be asked, but we write down the answer so that someone can look at our reference for it later. And that's what you'll find on our website. Yeah, the documentation is incredible. Kudos for gathering all of it and then presenting it in such an easy way to look through and understand. You do not need to be a technology expert, I think, to make use of the resources to to get things started. I think your style guide for interviews, for example, whether someone wants to engage in this particular project, I think that that is just an incredible resource for folks who are hopefully thinking um, intentionally <laughs> about how they're creating forms and the interview process for that. I want to know what what would you say is step number one if someone in a jurisdiction that doesn't have any of this happening yet? What would be step number one? What would be your recommendation for them? Well, I think the person that's best suited to work in our format. So first we had this big volunteer project, right? Which I don't know that that's, that, that moment's going to happen again. Because it still was, there was a ramp up time. There was, and I think even if you looked at our lessons, you probably would still need that ramp up time. And then we needed some sustained energy to have the output that we did. So you can't do that in a hackathon, for example, I don't think. Yeah. It's not going to be a week-long project. It's going to be a month-long project. Mm -hmm. So I think the best model going forward is the partnerships that we've been doing, where we have folks in states who are full-time or close to full-time, who are dedicated to maintaining and building forms. And maybe they work with people who have various degrees of training that they're supervising to be able to make sure that they're maintaining the right pace. So starts with people. Make sure you have the right person (laughs) and the right staffing, the right funding to keep this going. Because building a form is not a one-time thing. You have to maintain it and update it. Our tools make it easier and more repeatable and scalable and maintainable, I think. I strongly believe in that. But they don't make it free from effort and time. Yeah. Exactly. And I will just, as I was listening to you describe, it occurred to me, and I'm always looking for these opportunities, that this also would be, I think, an ideal form of pro bono if a system was designed so that you still could have volunteers come in and work incrementally on small parts of the project um, if you have the larger framework in place. I'm always looking for opportunities that we can push beyond the one-to-one service model when we think about how attorneys can give pro bono service. And I think that this offers an opportunity for that if designed intentionally for that to be part of the structure. So courtformsonline.org is the primary website and does have a tab for more information. Um, You also have a wealth of information where that takes you 
ultimately is SuffolkLitLab.org. And that's where I think all of the amazing documentation you all have created, the videos, everything lives. So I will do my best to, to hopefully we can get the links posted directly in some show notes so folks know exactly where. So where can folks find you if they maybe want to ask you a question as they are oh, absolutely. going forward on this? Yeah. Uh, so you could send me an email. I'm still trying to figure out the social media thing with kind of leaving Twitter for the most part. Um, you can find me as at Q Stainhouse on Twitter still. I can I'll still check it periodically. <laughs> I've also, I'm trying Mastodon. I'm at Q Stainhouse at knock, N-O-C dot social for right now and on LinkedIn. Or you can just send me an email, uh, Q Stainhouse at suffolk.edu. Those are probably the best ways. Excellent. Well, Quentin, thank you so much for your generosity in sharing about the Document Assembly Line project today and for your generosity in being available for folks who might want to learn more. I am a huge fan, and I hope that I can actually be part of bringing some part of this to fruition in Tennessee. Grateful for your time. It was fantastic to talk with you. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you, Kat. It was great speaking with you as well. I'm so grateful to Quentin for joining us on Talk Justice to talk about the innovative work he and his team at Suffolk Law are doing in partnership with legal aid organizations around the country to create web apps to streamline the process for pro se litigants to create forms online. I want to point everyone to the incredible set of resources and tools that exist on the project website, which you can find at suffolklitlab.org. Anyone who wants to create a beautiful and functional web app to automate document creation can follow this process using low-cost and open-source tools. And at onlinecourtforms.org, you can see a real-life example of the results of the Document Assembly Line project. Document automation is some of the lowest-hanging fruit to making court processes easier for pro se litigants. Kudos to Quentin, his team at Suffolk Law, and the hundreds of volunteers who have contributed to this project. And thanks to you for listening to this episode. Talk Justice is brought to you by Legal Services Corporation and Legal Talk Network. If you like what you heard today, please be sure to rate and review the show and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Podcast guest speakers' views, thoughts, and opinions are solely their own and do not necessarily represent the Legal Services Corporation's views, thoughts, or opinions. The information and guidance discussed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as legal advice. You should not make decisions based on this podcast content without seeking legal or other professional advice.